Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. The dearest idol I have known. Matthew chapter 24. Beginning in verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. The disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? pray our Father we ask now Lord God that you would bless us not only with thy presence but Lord with thy truth we pray the Spirit of God would guide us and direct our hearts our minds and our attentions open up our understanding Father for these questions which are the disciples asked the Lord so many years ago Lord they still echo with inside of our hearts and our minds thy coming again in the end of the world. Father, I pray that, God, you'd help us to ponder more seriously these things. It's been a long time since these words were first spoken. Many scoffers have come and gone, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Many years has passed, and the church still awaits your coming and the end of the world. Father, in many ways, I believe we become callous and insensitive and sleepy and unwatchful. Lord, I pray that you'd awaken us this morning to a spirit of watchfulness and alertness of anticipation. Lord, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified, that you would draw all of us closer to thee. And I pray the Spirit of God would be our teacher and our guide. May you be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There were many things that Christ spoke unto his disciples as he walks amongst them that would greatly astound and amaze them. But his proclamation of the destruction of the temple, that which they highly esteemed, I believe would shake them to the very core. When he went out of the temple and the disciples, Luke says, had him or look at the temple which was arrayed with goodly stones and beautiful things that he might admire it, Christ boldly says that those things shall crumble and fall to the ground. Everything that they had thought to be religiously of importance, Christ said, is going to be nothing but rubble in the eyes of God. And I believe with all my heart the disciples were shaken to the core because of this. I don't know how long it was before they came to Christ. It said He went to the Mount of Olives and sat down. I'm sure the disciples had some time to think about it. And like we said last week, 
Luke explains that only four of them came to him privately, but they came privately to ask him these questions because what he had just got finished telling them was something that amazed and astounded them, maybe even perplexed them to some degree. That this which they esteemed so highly and thought was so pious and religious and a symbol of, of godliness and devotion to God that Christ would say it's nothing but rubble. It's good, dearly beloved, when Christ tears down those false idols from our hearts, regardless of how highly we esteem them. Those idols, that song just said in that hymn, that I so adorn, that I so adore with, tear them out of my heart. It's good when Christ tears down our religious idols so that we might see only Him. And that's exactly what the Lord did to his disciples. He shook them to the very core. So much in the, in the fact that disciples came to him privately with these questions of when is thy coming and the end of the world. Christ, knowing the hearts of all men, knew what that response would be and he goes to the Mount of Olives and sits quietly waiting for them to come privately. And like I mentioned last week, I mention again today, these are times that we should cherish as God's people when we meet privately with Christ and asking things that we know not of, that he might open up our hearts and our eyes to his truths. What Christ declared publicly concerning the destruction of the temple would drive the disciples to privately inquire about matters of much greater and eternal significance. Oh, there's a divine blessing in that when God declares and does something publicly, like in the preaching of the word, that stirs our hearts up and then we take it back to our own private chambers and we begin to approach the Lord in prayer and ask Him to reveal unto us the things we heard publicly in a more private matter. Oh, God's people lack so much in this virtue. We leave the house of God so quickly, and the word that was preached is only barely on the surface of our hearts, and because we do not give diligence to water it with prayer and meditation so quickly, it loses its impression. What Christ speaks to us publicly when we take into the private chambers of our own hearts and we seek God to know it more fully and more thoroughly, that's the blessing of God's Word. And so what Christ proclaimed publicly, the disciples would come privately so that they might gain a better understanding of what Christ has said. And beloved, that's what we must and should do every time Christ proclaims Himself publicly through the preaching of the Word. Let us return to our homes in private prayer and seek God's wisdom and grace to know the truth more fully. Christ said in Matthew chapter 10, and the disciples are practicing it in our text, for what I tell you in darkness, 
Christ declared, that speak ye in light. And what you hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. What a blessing. Beloved, herein lies the true gospel ministry. Listen to me. Herein lies the true gospel ministry. Not the learning in the schools of men, but of Christ. For what he tells his ministers in darkness, that means not yet known, the mysteries of the kingdom of God, what he tells his ministers in darkness, they are to speak in light. And what he speaks to them in the ear, privately, alone, they are to preach upon the housetops. That's the ministry of the gospel. That's what preaching is. And that's the preacher's calling. It's not from the school of men, but taught of Christ. I say that because we have far too many today who are self-proclaimed preachers called either by constraint or consent or of men because of the lack or shortage of true ministers. And this is evident everywhere across America, around the world today, because churches are lacking in true preachers. Men are coming into the pulpit because of constraint or consent or of men and not of God. And that's a big problem for the church. They're teachers, not preachers. Soothe itching of the ears, Paul says. No, a true minister of the gospel is something that God speaks to him in the darkness, that he tells in light and speaks in his ear, and he gets in the house cops and proclaims and preaches. That's the ministry of the gospel. That's preaching. We have too many man, self-made, self-proclaimed preachers in the pulpit, not men that are called of God. The disciples are doing exactly what Christ would have every minister to do. What I tell you in the dark, you tell them, you speak in the light, and what I tell in your ear, you preach upon the housetops. Isn't that amazing? The next few chapters are all said privately amongst the disciples, and yet we have these words before us today in the light or upon the housetops preached loudly. Isn't that amazing how God does that? Isn't it amazing the calling of the ministry? Christ would proclaim publicly the destruction of the temple and then take his disciples to the side and say, now let me tell you privately so that you can stand at the housetops and preach it boldly. That's the ministry. That's preaching. What, they ask, what shall be the sign of thy coming in the end of the world? You know, there's, there's a comma there. These two great events coincide with one another. What is, shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? You ever thought about those, that question? I mean, for a long time, have you thought seriously? Have you considered, have you meditated the question which the disciples ask our Lord? Because often in our eagerness and curiosity to read the Lord's response, we tend to ignore and rush quickly over these questions. Oh, that's the question? Let me get to the response. Let me find out what Christ answers them. We don't take time to ponder the question. Let us this morning take time to ponder the question. Because it is a matter of great significance. One which should occupy our hearts and our minds, especially in these trying and perilous times in which we live. 
Because truly, beloved, we are beyond those things which Christ says in verses 8, 4 to 8, calls the beginning of the sorrow. We're far beyond that. What is the sign of thy coming? <laughs> and the end of the world. The disciples ask it as though, again, like one cannot be done without the other. And it's true. The coming of Christ means the end of the world. How do you consider that? What do you think about that? What does your mind think? What do you consider? What do you ponder when those words come to your mind? The coming of Christ and the end of the world. Because believe me, this has not the same effect on everyone. For the true believer, the coming of Christ in the end of the world is magnificent. It's splendid. It's glorious. We anticipate it with joy and excitement and wonder and praise. We long for it. We yearn for it. We pray for it. And yet those that are unconverted and without Christ, the coming of Christ offers nothing but great terror. And the end of the world, that means the beginning of eternity. The end of everything you cherish, the end of everything that you desire, the end of everything that you own, the end of everything that you are, it comes to an end with the coming of Christ. It all ends and eternity begins. There's nothing of joy for the unconverted, for the, un, for the ungodly. There's nothing, there's nothing of joy in the coming of Christ and the end of the world, but for the child of God, there's great joy and anticipation. The true child of God, because he's been born again and he knows Christ and Christ dwelleth in him, he has an inward longing and yearning to see Christ, that he might see him face to face. Oh, yet the unconverted doesn't want Christ to come because you don't want to see Christ coming. Now he presents himself as a Lamb of God, offering salvation by his grace. Yet when he comes the second time, he's not coming as the Lamb of God. He's coming as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Where in Revelations, the people cry out, let the mountains and rocks fall upon us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. Oh, they see nothing beautiful about Christ when he comes again. They see nothing but wrath. They see the wrath of God flowing from his countenance, the anger of God, condemnation. No mercy, no grace. They see nothing about him they desire. But oh, what the grace of God in Christ Jesus does for the believer. We see nothing but what is lovely and adoring and pleasing and longing and we yearn for that. What a vast difference that is. In this question, we don't see or anticipate anything that's fearful or terrorizing. Sure, there's reverence here. But it's almost as though they're anticipating that. Tell us the signs of your coming and the end of the world as though they're anticipating it. That these two monumental and glorious events should coincide with one another, dearly beloved, is an amazing and glorious truth which brings to God's people the greatest hope of glory. And as I pondered these things throughout the week, it just began to get so big and monumental that I, I couldn't expound on all of it this morning. 
because there's a twofold thing to this, his coming and the end of the world. Well, the end of the world means the judgment of God. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but just as a foretaste, do you know, do you realize as a Christian that we look forward to the judgment of God? Do you know that? We look forward to the judgment of God. That God would be glorified in the condemnation of the ungodly and that God would be glorified in the redeeming and sanctification and justifying of his believers. Beloved, what a day that will be. God will be so glorified when we as saved sinners stand before a holy, holy God and we're justified in Christ. That will bring the greatest glory to God. And we will rejoice in that day that God will declare us forever and eternally justified in Christ. We are at the moment, but oh, to have that displayed before all eternity, we're going to glorify God in that. And He's going to be glorified to the max. And when He condemns the ungodly to damnation, we're going to glorify God for that, and He's going to be glorified for that. It's a great day for the child of God. We look forward to the coming judgment of God. And I'll show that to you next week due to time. But I'll show you verses throughout Scripture that the child of God looks forward to that day when God shall be glorified in this judgment. The condemnation of the wicked and the saving of the elect. I'm telling you, we look forward to that. We long for that. You know, when we got saved... God imparted to us a longing and desire for His holiness and justice to glorify Him, that we long to see God glorified. We long to see the justice of God reign over all the universe. That's what we long for. Why do you think the psalmist speaks often about the condemnation of the wicked and how he longs for that? The souls under the altar in Revelation cry out, How long, God, before you recompense us, bring revenge upon for what our, our blood? How long, God, will you wait? The child of God waits for that great day of judgment. He longs for it. He wants to see God justified. Not himself. He wants to see God justified. He wants to witness that glory. So we look forward to Christ's coming and the end of the world. Yet, for the ungodly, that's not so true. But for the godly, for his elect, the coming of Christ is something that we should always long for, desire, pray for. When's the last time, and ask this question within your own heart, when's the last time we really sat and pondered and thought about the coming of Christ. Not getting through the trials of the day, and not I'm not saying those are insignificant. Sure, they, they trouble us sometimes. But I think sometimes God shows us the agony of the world so that we might set our hearts on things above and not on things of the world. I mean, those things that aggravate the flesh should set our spirits. Oh, I want to go home. I mean, this world, I'm tired of it and all the troubles and problems and afflictions, uh, be it on the job or at the home or the temptation or vehicles. <laughs> world is just, it's a mess. But when's the last time that we have seriously pondered the coming of the Lord? You know, when... uh Oftentimes when I traveled, uh, 
when I was missionary in Germany and come to the States, oftentimes when you get off the plane, you know, you got family members and everybody waiting outside, you know, and outside the luggage where you pick up your luggage and they're standing out there with signs and, you know, especially military. Some military folks been gone for years and mom and dads and brothers and sisters out there making signs. Welcome home, Johnny. Sorry, Johnny, didn't mean to use your name at the first game. Welcome home, Johnny. And when he comes out that gate, they're all like, ah, they're just so like, they've been anticipating this day for a long time. And they're going, Johnny, Johnny, and they run and they embrace him and you see the tears of joy and happiness and they don't care what other people think about him. They're just excited about Johnny being home and we should have even more excitement about the coming of Christ. Do you know in the old church history, when the old days of the church, that was one of their salutations and one of their departing salutations. The Lord come today. That's what they would remind each other every time. The Lord comes today. It was so fresh on their mind, so real to them that the Lord could come any hour. Any hour He could come. And I tell you, it was much easier for them than it is for us, especially in the days of the Acts and the Apostles. The Lord had just recently ascended to heaven, and they were thinking, okay, he said he's coming back. It's got to be soon. And, and so they're looking forward. He's gonna, they thought seriously, Paul spoke and preached and wrote as though the Lord would come back any minute. He spoke to the Thessalonian church as though, hey, the Lord's going to be back any minute. And they, they had that great comfort and anticipation. But as the years go by, as the centuries go by, and we're here 2,000 years later and the Lord still hasn't come, I think for many of us it's hard to believe or anticipate His coming. It's been so long. I've preached over 35 years on the coming of Christ, and He's still not here. I think between the scoffers crying, where is the promise of His coming? In the long delay of the Lord, I fear many of us have fallen asleep. And it just doesn't seem as a reality to us anymore. It's been so long. And we begin to get weary. Let me give you an illustration that doesn't match this, but it, in a way it does. It's almost like the boy who cried wolf, right? Cries it all the time, all the time. No one happens it. In my job, I get yearly an inspection from life safety from state, and they come in. And when we usually know when they come in, because actually before COVID, they had to come in 12 to 13 months after they'd been there before. If they got, if they, if it went over 15 months, they couldn't come in. If they waited 15 months before their last coming in, they couldn't come in. Well, that changed. Well, the state's been promising to come in for two years now. Four months ago, they came in for the medical. My life safety hadn't been in yet. So they came four months ago, and every week, I know they come Monday or Tuesday. Every week, Monday and Tuesday, I'm up, and I'm in work, and I'm getting the paperwork ready, and I'm getting ready. I basically don't do nothing until after 10 or 11 o'clock, because if they're not there by then, I know they're not coming that day. They usually get So every Monday and Tuesday, for months, I did that. It's got to the point now it's where it's like, I'm not as diligent anymore. It's been four months. I go to work and I'm aware about it, but I'm not as diligent as I was. And I got to thinking, I thought, that's the same as what the Lord is trying to tell us in Matthew 24 and 25 about being alert and being awake. Because He's delayed His coming, sometimes we kind of grow indifferent. And we're more concerned about our daily problems and needs. And we're less occupied with the coming of our Lord. but it shouldn't be that way. 
the disciples were yet ignorant of what Christ's coming entailed when they asked this question. Yet Christ would declare unto them the signs of his coming to the encouragement and comfort of generations to come. Thy coming. What influence should that have upon our daily lives as Christians? What anticipation, hope, and joy such meditation should bring us? What does it help us by thinking constantly about his coming? Well, first of all, John chapter 14, turn with me there, very well-known passage of Scripture. Let me tell you what the coming of Christ should do for our troubled hearts. We have troubled hearts. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. We know this passage very well. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it be troubled. Why do you say that? Well, in chapter 13, he revealed to him that one shall betray him, one shall deny him three times, they all shall forsake him, <clears throat> and he's going to be crucified. That was enough to trouble anybody. But the Lord said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. But he didn't stop there. <clears throat> he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. <coughs> Excuse me. I go to prepare a place for you. Well, he didn't stop there either. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Have you ever thought about that? You know, we build our homes and our houses. And <coughs> we get contractors and construction people. Lord said, I'm going to heaven. And God, who spoke and the world existed, is going to prepare. God is going to prepare some place. So he says, I'm going to prepare a place. Well, couldn't he just speak it into existence? I'm sure he could. But Christ says, I'm preparing it for you. Can you imagine? Or do you ever try to imagine what that's like? Or will be like? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I love this. And receive you unto myself. I'm glad he's preparing a place, but that place would be nothing without this latter part. And receive you unto myself. I like that. Heaven would not be heaven without Christ. I'm going to receive you unto myself. I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. You see, that helps. That's the remedy for our troubled hearts in this world. Peter, you're going to deny me thrice. You're all going to forsake me. I'm going to be crucified tomorrow. You're all going to go your own way. That's going to trouble your heart. But don't be troubled because if I go away to prepare a place, I'm going to come again to receive you unto myself. That where I am, <clears throat> you may be also. That is what comforts <coughs> excuse me, our troubling hearts is coming again. What do I do when my heart's troubled with all the sorrows and problems and afflictions that I face in life? He's coming again. That's why we should encourage one another with that. 
man, I'm having trouble after trouble. It seems like not as severe as Job, but one after another. Boom, 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 boom. Things fall upon me. It's like it doesn't stop. When it begins to rain, it rains. What do I do with the troubled heart with that? He's coming again. Let not your heart be troubled. I'm coming again. And all those vain things. Isn't that what the song says? One glimpse of his dear face and all sorrows shall erase. He's coming again. And on our text, it's not just merely a general coming back for everybody. I receive you unto myself. This is what the greatest joy is. He's coming again. Listen to me. He's coming again for me. For me. When they were stoning Stephen. In the midst of all of that, he's lying on the ground and blood pouring and streaming from his body. He looks up and he says, I see Christ standing on the right hand of the Father. That was a symbol of Christ standing up to welcome his own to heaven. He said, I see Christ standing on me. Oh, that enraged his enemies. But Stephen said, I see Christ standing, not sitting, but standing on the right hand of the Father to receive me unto heaven. I'm telling you, I believe with all my heart, if there's joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repenteth, how much joy in the presence of the angel when the saint is called home. <laughs> He's coming back for me. Cheers my troubled heart. The anticipation of his coming back enables us to consider our fiery trials more precious than of gold. While it increases our love for him whom we have not seen. Look at first Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. Listen to the wording of the apostle Peter here. First Peter chapter one. Talking about inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, verse 4, faded not away, reserved in heaven. What a wonderful thing. Wherein, verse 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season in this world, for a season, if need be, three greatest words found in Peter, if need be, and God determines if need be. So there's comfort in that. You're in heaviness. It's not light. It's not easy. It's heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire. That's good. We understand the, the, the purging of that. We understand the fire. But what? Might be found unto praise and honor and glory. What? At the appearing of Jesus Christ. The anticipating His coming again helps us to be comforted during these times of fiery trials. Because Peter says that it's going to be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 8 even goes farther. I told you it's intimate. It's always intimate. The coming of Christ, and remember this, the coming of Christ in Scripture is always an intimate thing. Yes, it speaks in general terms. He's coming back. The world's going to be set right. All these other kind of things. But for the believer, it's always an intimate thing. And I'll show you that in Job in a minute. But well, verse 8, whom having not seen... You love. In whom though now you see him not, yet believing. And look at this. You rejoice with joy in speaking, speakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Do you see that? The consideration, the anticipation of his coming helps us to understand the preciousness of the trying of our faith because it enhances our love for him. Uh -huh. 
and it gives us much rejoicing and joy unspeakable. He's coming again. He's coming again. He's coming again. We should start every day with some kind of hymn, psalm. He's coming again. He's coming again. Not only that, but the anticipation of his coming, listen to this one, makes us pilgrims and strangers on earth. It truly makes us pilgrims and strangers on earth, creating in us a desire for a better country. We all know the passage of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> Look at Hebrews chapter 11, 13 to 16. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them from uh, seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Watch this, and truly, if they had been mindful of that country from which then whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God, this is the heart of this text. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Christ says, I'm going to prepare a place. Here, God says, I'm going to prepare a city. <laughs> Strangers and pilgrims. Do we feel like strangers and pilgrims? You know what makes us strangers and pilgrims when we're constantly talking about home? <laughs> there was a time in Germany, right before I got saved, even a little bit afterwards, <clears throat> where I was always talking to my wife about America. Well, in America, we do things this way. Now she's doing it. Well, in Germany, we do things. But I'm constantly talking about America. And sometimes she'd get frustrated with that. You're not living in America. You're in Germany. When I go out and I talk to people, for a few minutes, I'd be able to persuade them that maybe I'm a little bit German, but eventually the accent would come out. And they'd go, oh, you're not from here, are you? Even after 35 years, I'd still find people saying, ah, I catch it now, your accent. You're not from here, are you? Does the world know we're not from here? Do we act like pilgrims and strangers? When we anticipate his coming, we become more like pilgrims and strangers. I fear the church is nowhere near the majority of pilgrims and strangers. They have, they have become so much like this world, you can't tell the difference apart. In their actions, their entertainments, their joy, everything they do, you can't tell they're strangers and pilgrims. But anticipating his coming makes us strangers and pilgrims. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. This world's not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the door. It keeps our hearts and affections from being too attached to the world. So when God of his divine providence shakes the worldly things up, cast down and destroys those things of the world that attracts our hearts. We should thank God for that. Do you know that? We should thank God for that. Sometimes we get too settled in in the world, so God does things in our lives to 
kind of shake those things up and say, this is this should not be your joy. This is, should not be your contentment. Your joy and contentment should be in me, in me alone. And we're reminded of the foolishness of this world. The end of the world. What a wonderful contemplation for a believer. The end of the world. What does that mean? The world lieth in wickedness. The end of the presence of sin. The end of temptation of sin. The end of the enemies of God. The end of the world. What a wonderful thought. The end of the world. Look at the news today and that's all you hear. And I've been tempted sometimes to say that. Just read the front page of, of the news. What Five killed here. One maimed here. One robbed there. War there. Economy prices here. Inflation 9% here. It's just distress and chaotic and hectic. And the Christian looks back and says, the end of the world. What a joyful thought. My daughter was telling me there were so many churches, some of them with Baptist on the door in Colorado Springs, hanging the rainbow flag of the LGBT, letting people know that you're accepted in this facility. I won't even call them a church. The end of the world. When we see such wickedness and vileness, and it's growing all the time, we look forward to the judgment of God. Yes, God, glorify yourself in justifying yourself. Glorify yourself in the condemnation of the wicked and those who hate God. And glorify yourself even more when your saints shall stand before you justified in Christ. <laughs> and it's all of grace and God will be greatly. You think God's greatly glorified now and he is when a sinner is saved by grace? Yes, they, yes, he is. But can you imagine what it's going to be like when we all stand before this thrice holy God and God declares us again or anew eternally justified? We're just as justified now as we will be then. Don't misunderstand me. People will run this thing off and say, look at the heresies he's free. But I'm telling you, God will be glorified when we stand before him and he justifies us openly before the universe by his grace. It's going to be a magnificent day. But the greatest comfort that comes from contemplating, anticipating the coming of Christ, I believe Job declares in Job chapter 19. Turn with me to Job, the oldest book in the Bible. The one place that you would maybe think or believe couldn't be seen. Look at Job. He's coming again for me. Job 19, in verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Listen to me. In my flesh I shall see God. God told Moses, no one's ever seen the face of God and lived. Job says, and I shall see God. There is no human words, and I've struggled with this for the past few days, there's no human words that I could say to persuade you to consider this as seriously and as humbly and as earnestly as we should. We shall see God. 
the same God where the universe flees from His presence. We shall see God as He is. And we will fall down in everlasting praise and adoration. We shall see the face of God and live because of Christ. Whom I shall see, he says, for myself. And mine eyes shall behold and not another. I'm going to see this for myself. And with that thought, turn with me to First John, and I'll close this out. First John, with that thought, look what First John says. First John chapter 3. Oh, contemplate this. Behold, John says, listen, pay attention. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew Him not. Now watch this, beloved. <clears throat> now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. It's still a great mystery, but listen to this. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. Like Him. Like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. I tried to pray over this, meditate on this, and I thought, Lord, the only thing I can do is pray that Your Word would infiltrate our hearts and our minds because there's no human words that can define or describe what John just said. We shall see him like he is or as he is. How is he? How is Christ? I don't know, but we'll see him as he is. Beloved, we we need to spend more time pondering on this question. I, I believe with all my heart, that's why the Lord throughout 24 and 25 of Matthew, He earnestly exhorts us to watchfulness because we tend to get sluggish and sleepful and slothful. And we begin to forget about that. And the Lord says, no, stay awake, be alert, watch, be alert, because I'm going to come in an hour that you know not of. I want you to be able, don't sleep like the five, like don't fall asleep like the ten virgins, and make sure the oil in your lamp is full like the five and not like the five foolish. And I want you to be aware of the surroundings around you. Always be prepared for my coming, regardless of how long it takes. Always be prepared for my coming. Always watch and be ready. How do we do that? setting our affections on things above. This is no easy task, dearly beloved. I'm, I'm telling you, this, this is harder for us now than it was after the days Christ was ascended up in heaven because it's been centuries. And, and we kind of look back saying it's been so long. And sometimes I think we're influenced by the scoffers are saying, where's, this problem? where's the promise of his coming? He's not coming back again. Your God lied to you. He's coming again. He's coming again. And with His coming, the end of the world and the final judgment of God, where God shall be glorified in both the condemnation of the sinners 
and the exaltation of the saints, God will be glorified. Let every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's going to happen. We look forward to it. May God give us grace to always keep this in our hearts and our minds. Occupy yourself, please, your hearts and minds with the coming of the Lord. Because, dearly beloved, when we do that, we'll be ready. We'll be full of anticipation. And nothing in this world shall be able to confound us by us constantly thinking about the coming of the Lord. Tell us, what are the signs of thy coming in the end of the world? Amen. May God grant us grace and mercy to contemplate the coming of our Lord. He's coming. He's coming. Sooner than we think. Maybe today. Mm. I hope you're ready. Because if you're not, you'll not enjoy His coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask You now, Lord, that the Holy Spirit of God would impart unto us this spirit of anticipation and hope, longing and yearning for the coming of Christ. It's been so long. Lord, we've heard it for so many years as Christians. Lord, I pray that, God, you'd help us to not grow sluggish, slothful. But, Lord, I pray that you'd renew in us a spirit of anticipation and longing for your coming. May we begin every day with the prayer and desire that you would come today. And, Lord, if the day goes by and you've not returned, I pray as we close our eyes before we do in sleep. I pray that, Lord, we'd ask and beseech you that, Lord, maybe, hopefully, you'd come while we sleep. And if not while we sleep, then the next day, may we every day, every day, anticipate thy coming. We love you and thank you for all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.